Hello, Art Curious folks. I am so excited to share this all-new interview with you today. I recently spoke to author and journalist Michael Finkel about his new book, The Art Thief, a true story of love, crime, and a dangerous obsession. So I know that if you're anything like me, you love art, and you also love a good and unbelievably awesome true story about bad things happening to art. So you may have encountered the remarkable story of Stefan Breitwieser, the world's most prolific art thief, in Finkel's 2019 article, The Secrets of the World's Greatest Art Thief, in GQ magazine. Breitwieser, along with his girlfriend who worked as his lookout, carried out more than 200 heists over nearly eight years, stealing more than 300 objects, until it all fell apart in spectacular fashion. In The Art Thief, Finkel elaborates on Breitwieser's story and ultimate arrest, how he was able to steal everything from 16th century paintings to a 17th century sword to statues and carvings and musical instruments, adding up to more than $1.4 billion worth of art. The Art Thief is a spellbinding portrait of obsession and flawed genius. Michael Finkel brings us into Breitwieser's strange world because unlike most thieves, he never stole for money. He kept all of his treasures in a pair of secret rooms where he could admire them to his heart's content. This is a riveting story of art, crime, love, and an insatiable hunger to possess beauty at any cost. It will change how you look at art and the museums that house it. Michael Finkel is the best-selling author of The Stranger in the Woods, The Extraordinary Story of the Last True Hermit, and True Story, Murder, Memoir, Mea Culpa. He lives in Salt Lake City, Utah, and he joined me recently on Zoom. I loved this book. Thank you all for listening in today. Michael Finkel, thank you for joining me on Art Curious today. Thank you. I'm honored to be here. I am thrilled to have you. I, I think it's safe to say that when it comes, I'm a big reader, but I'm also a nonfiction junkie. And I feel like there's almost nothing I love more than a good nonfiction story about the art world. And I don't know if this makes me kind of a strange art historian and curator, but I love a good art theft story. And I have to say, especially one that I can read in a day. So thank you for this amazing book. Thank you for the kind words. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. Art heists are sort of a catnip to me as well, just uh, sort of irresistible, also sort of looking through the slats of your fingers as you, as you dread whatever's going to happen in the end. Exactly, exactly. So for readers who might not yet be familiar with who Stefan Breitweiser is, um, first of all, are you able, in a kind of a two-part question, can you tell us a little bit about him and his background? And then second, I'd love for you to then let us in on how you got involved in writing this book, how you became familiar with Breitweiser and his story. Yes. Uh, the Art Thief, the book about Stefan Breitweiser, is about a young man. He's now in his 50s, born in 1971, but a living art thief who is quite possibly the most prolific art thief who's ever lived. And I was drawn to this story for several reasons. Yes, he, the quantity of crimes I don't think anybody in the 300-year history of museums has stolen from more than 20 museums, while Breitweiser stole from more than 210 museums and churches. So it's the sheer quantity that's amazing. The value was estimated as much as $2 billion. But neither of those reasons, not the quantity nor the price, really hooked me. The first was that he stole 
non-violently, without even the threat of violence during the day, and I'm sure we'll discuss some of this. And then the thing that really uh, brought my curiosity into maybe obsession level is that he never tried to sell any of the works he stole. Instead, he hung them up in this low-ceilinged and cramped attic lair that he shared with his girlfriend and lookout in his mother's house. He just made a Alibaba's cave of extraordinary treasure in his home. He stole, unlike almost every real art thief in history, he stole for the love of art. I just can't get enough of that. I think that's absolutely incredible. And again, I, again, I don't know if that makes me um, a weird art historian, but I guess I can relate to that. You know, it's like anytime you walk into a museum, even though I have that museum background, I'll look at a wall and just be like, oh, I wish I could have that for myself. So I kind of love that that's the direction he was coming from and not stealing the most important or most um, profitable, perhaps, work of art. That's right, right? Where he was looking for something that really just spoke to him. Yeah, I think there were two things that when Stefan Breitbieser went into a museum, he was often not sure what he was going to steal. He loved to look at museum catalogs and uh, online uh, exhibits. So he had sort of an idea of what appealed to him. He had a specific uh, genre. He loved late Renaissance Northern European work. But that aside, he had to choose a piece that sung to him, that spoke to his heart. You, as a museum goer, Jen, I'm sure that you know that feeling of like that buzzy connection when you're like, this is this is uh, something that I connect with. And you don't even have to put it into words. It's almost a feeling if you're if you're a, an art enthusiast. That yes. was number one. But there was a little caveat, which that it had to be of a manageable size to steal. And that's usually what he called cabinet paintings, relatively small oil paintings and sculptures that were probably no bigger than a brick to a cinder block size. Anything too big, although later in his career, he abandoned all of his roles, but generally <laughs> it had to be of a certain size and it had to appeal to his heart. That's so interesting. How did he get involved in art theft? I'm, obviously, I'm going to encourage people to get your book, but how did this all begin for him? Breitweiser, as maybe most extraordinary criminals are, had an unusual upbringing. He was an only child. He was sort of a loner. He told me once that, uh, you know, he was uh, his his problem. He said he knew what his problem was, but it was incurably existential that he was he felt like he was born in the wrong century, that he sort of was an old soul, even at the youngest of age, and he loved old things. His, his parents, when he was young, they lived in a kind of a grand house in the Alsace region of northeastern France, bordering Switzerland and Germany, and that three-part borderlands. And his house was filled with ivory collectibles and antique weapons and beautiful paintings. Unfortunately, his parents had a fairly traumatic breakup when he was in his teen years, and the father who had inherited all these collectibles took everything that Breitweiser thought was beautiful in his home and moved out and Breitweiser stayed with his mother. And he said that they lived in an apartment and it was now decorated instead of with Renaissance riches, now with Ikea furniture. And he said, at least at first, that his goal was to recreate the beauty that surrounded him in his youth and maybe to avenge his father. These seem like classic Greek tragedy sort of motivations. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's funny because I think of this book as a tragedy, so I'm glad you brought that up. I think there are lots of tragic elements to it. Going off of that, actually, I want to talk about the subtitle of your book because you mentioned right off that this is a true story about love. And I think it's that dual love that Stefan has both for the art and the objects that he's take he takes, but also for his girlfriend friend, Anne-Catherine. Can you tell us a little bit about her? What is her role in all of this? So Breitweiser 
stole, he began his stealing spree when he was quite young, when he was like 24 years old, maybe even a little younger. And really everything started. I think he had the tendency to be uh, to be a thief, but he met and fell in love with a woman named Anne-Catherine Kleinklaus. And she fell in love with him. And they made an incredibly unusual couple to say the least. And it was once they fell in love with each other, and that was at the age of 20, that really the stealing spree started. Um, I'm not gonna tell you all the ways to steal a work of art, but I will suggest <laughs> if you're considering it out there, you know, stealing work, it's really good to have a lookout that you can trust. And Anne-Catherine served as Brightvisor's lookout. And together, the two of them embarked on a stealing spree that has no comparison in the annals of art thieving. Usually it, to, to plan an art crime takes months slash years of intricate work. Breitweiser and Anne-Catherine averaged one theft every 12 days for more than seven years. And that is a pace, like I said, that is almost inconceivable. And they, it turns out that they both shared a love of art and a love of the heist. Nice. I, it's like I can barely get my mind wrap around this story when I was reading it. And uh, talking about the lack of, I mean, I guess I wouldn't necessarily call it a lack of preparation, but the the audacity of it all. One part in which you're talking about that they go in and they see, I believe it's a display of silver pieces. And then they return. Doesn't he return to that exact museum multiple times over to continually steal works in this one case? Yeah. So I first I want to emphasize because this just even listening to us speaking, Jan, I'm like, I want to tell everyone that this is a true story. This is nonfiction. <laughs> yes. This has been fact-checked by two different fact-checkers thoroughly. And so if this sounds unbelievable, I completely agree with anyone who says this is this is not real, but it is also True. I mean, the old cliche, truth is stranger than fiction. One of the things that I really found the most, I guess I'll say fun, even though, please, I'm a museum goer. I do not <laughs> endorse stealing anything from a museum. I, right. am, I, just like you, always talk to my wife when we're in a museum and we always whisper to each other, now that piece would look great over the fireplace mantle, wouldn't it? <laughs> yes. Of course, I think everyone does that. And then you move on to the next Van Gogh. Um, but Breitweiser could not get past that. Well, maybe I should put it over my mantle. I think what you were hinting at is Breitweiser and Anne Catherine's amazing spontaneity. Mm -hmm. They were able to create, or Breitweiser especially, had a mind where he could create uh, incredibly successful and intricate or simple crime in a heartbeat. For example, I think you were uh, talking about a one of, they went to one of the largest museums in Europe, sort of the Louvre of Belgium, the Belgium National Museum of Art and History, and they saw inside a display case seemed to be missing something. And Breitweiser was like, oh my God, someone has already been stealing from this museum. Look at this case, it has some blank spots in it. And inside was a little bent index card that said in French, objects removed for study. Yes. Now, when you think about maybe art crime, you're probably thinking about like rappelling through skylights and like smoke bombs and all that Thomas Crown kind of stuff. Now, that <laughs> is all fiction. Yeah. Stephanie Breitweiser, the most successful real life art thief of all time, told me that the most amazing tool he ever used to steal art was a folded in half index card saying objects removed for study. Now, he didn't like the objects in that box. Remember, we already talked about he only stole things, not that he could steal, but that spoke to his heart. He never stole a Picasso. He didn't like modern art. He could have. 
But what he did, he stole in an ingenious way out of that display box, just the index card, went to another display case that had the Renaissance silver that he loves, this sort of German uh, Rococo, early Baroque, like fantastical, like goblets and centerpieces, this beautiful warship in solid silver, very valuable items. He cut the uh, seals on that display case, took a few things out and just put the index card there, got out of the museum, thought, wow, that really worked waited a couple of weeks, went back, and there was the card still there. So they took more items out, left that card right there, left the museum again, thought, wow, that worked again, went a third time and ended up basically clearing out this entire box while all the every, all the employees of the museum just figured it was objects removed for study. And they got millions and millions of dollars worth of silver in that extraordinarily simple but yet effective way. I love this because I, I totally agree with you. It's like it turns the pop culture trope of the gentleman art thief on its head so fascinatingly in that there are no lasers. There's none of that repelling that you're talking about. It's something so simple and and so pure in a way. So Stefan, both with and without Anne-Catherine, you mentioned this huge number of thefts that they were able to perpetrate for multiple years. How many years were they able to do this before before things came falling down, as you said? Yeah, I mean, we mentioned Greek tragedy before. There is an <laughs> yeah. Icarus element to this tale. They were highly active in the late 90s into the middle of the 2000s for almost a decade. For eight years, really, they were on this incredible Three out of every four weeks, they would steal an object from a museum. They stole from more than 220 to 212 different places. Sometimes they stole multiple pieces. Eventually, in this two tiny rooms in their attic, uh, they had more than 300 works of art, most of it from the 16th and 17th century, all of it museum quality pieces. And uh, again, there is really no comparison in the annals of art crime for anyone as successful and prolific and Catherine and Stefan. Why were they so like almost preternaturally successful at this? I know you mentioned sort of the simplicity in not having this big grand uh, thought out gestures with technology and all that good stuff. Why was this almost so easily done for Stefan in particular? Yeah, I would I would say it seemed easily done, but I guess first of all, the two of them, their coupling, their pairing, their love affair—it it is truly extraordinary. They were both, uh, you know, the French term sang froid, cold blooded. Mm. They were both able to. I mean, I can't, I couldn't steal a chocolate bar without probably breaking out into flop sweat, looking over my <laughs> shoulders, running out. I would just be caught. I'm just not. Right. I just don't think I have the mien, the the personality to get away with stuff. They both had this ability to do the most ri insanely risky moves in the middle of a museum, in the middle of the day, sometimes with a guard in the room, and neither of them uh, gave away their, they had to be extraordinarily nervous inside. And they also sort of, they sort of worked off each other. And Catherine was a little bit more cautious and would be, would call off thefts. And Breitwieser was able to determine almost instantaneously the weak spot of any alarm system or case or how to remove a painting from the wall. And so together they had this very amazing dance. They had an idea. It seems almost completely counterintuitive to anything that a thief anywhere would do. And there is Brightwise's idea was this, something that a thief would obviously never do is precisely what a thief should consider doing. For example, they sometimes went on guided tours of a museum. Now, when you're on a guided tour of a museum, 
the person who's guiding you, an employee of the museum, knows your face. They've met you. <laughs> they see you. That is obviously when a person should not steal, when someone knows your face. And they thought, you know what? We're going to steal on a guided tour. And even if there's, even if the alarms go off and someone and someone is uh, notices the crime, the last people they're going to suspect are the people that have been with this museum employee all day. And they were absolutely right. It's sort of this crazy psychology. They often said, they often, in the middle of a theft, would go up to a guard and ask instructions like how to get to a certain room in, in a museum. And the reason why they would do that is because that is not what a thief would ever do. They actually ate in a museum cafe with stolen works on their body <laughs> while they slowly ate lunch. And the reason why they did this once again is because when the alarms goes off, the last place the police are gonna check are the people eating lunch. That is not what a thief does. So I found this like incredible chutzpah. Yeah. And, you know, again, not endorsing any of this, but wow, <laughs> anti-hero and, you know, non-violent, not even the threat of violence to anyone. In fact, Bright Visor himself often said to me that he hated to be called an art thief because almost all real art thieves, like the famous Isabella Stewart Gardner break-in, I mean, Bright, Bright Visor's sole tool that he used mostly was just a Swiss army knife in a pocket, nothing more complicated than that, but a hell of a lot of um, criminal sort of thinking that subverts normal any, anything that any other criminal has ever thought of like like waving goodbye on the way out the door um you know taking the guided tours using a bent index card and i found these like you know and by the way not only did i interview brightweiser himself at absolute length i confirmed that all of these accounts were correct by you know interviewing the police officers that chased him all the legal reports that came out everything um you know eventually Eventually, the world comes crashing down. So there's tons of documentation that these seemingly unbelievable crimes are well-documented and, and true. There's more coming up next right after this break. Want to listen ad-free? Join Patreon for the cost of a cup of coffee. Visit patreon.com slash artcurious, and we will be right back. And that's actually a great point because I wanted to ask you about your writing process and the research process because... Two parts. One is I know this was a long time coming. You were researching and working on this book for for many years. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, when it comes to efficiency, you should probably speak to someone else. I think that <laughs> I am like the poster child for inefficient work. I learned about the story of Stefan Breitbieser by reading things in the French press, and he had never spoken. He hadn't given an interview when I first heard about him for many years, and had never spoken to an American journalist. I, I, I'm fluent in French with a terrible accent, but I speak French. And so we conversed with each other in French, but I wrote Stefan Breitweiser a handwritten letter introducing myself and asking if he would consent to an interview. And from that first letter until the publication of The Art Thief, it comes out in, on June 27th, uh, 11 years have passed. Now, I didn't work on it full-time for 11 years, but it was an 11-year process. We wrote letters to each other. He was very timid. We met for lunch without a pen or a notebook. He finally agreed to sit for interviews. He sat for many, many formal interviews in my hotel rooms. Then we did some road trips together. Then we went to museums together, and he showed <laughs> me exactly how he stole. And then I started interviewing all the people that had met him or defended him, his lawyers, psychologists, everything. And then, of course, I had to dive into the world of art thieving and research. And then, Jen, I finally sat down and wrote the book and it took a couple of drafts and I'm just exhausted myself even <laughs> detailing this. Suffice it to say that who cares about all the labor that puts in what I really hope is that someone who reads the book doesn't feel any of that labor and just is sort of swept away on a fun 
bizarre, completely unpredictable. I'm, we'll not talk about the ending, but I bet you no. we can pull a thousand people and no one will guess what happens to the art in the end. Uh, um, yes. I hope it's a fun ride. That's oh, really all I care about. Don't worry about the work in the background. I just want the reader to sit back in their airplane or wherever they happen to be on their train, listening in their car and just float along in, in, in you know, I can't say whether you like the writing, but boy, this story is a is a doozy. Well, I have to say that for me, it was entirely successful. Again, it was, I think your book is just over about 200 pages in, in at least in the hardcover form that I have. And I sat down and read it one day. So it was an extremely blissful experience. So it's a great story and the writing is wonderful. And again, I don't want to give the ending away, but I also want to exhort our listeners today that I want them to read everything, including there's that fascinating note on your writing and research of the book at the very end, which I found, again, completely fascinating, that you alluded to that you went to museums with Stefan Breitweiser. What was that like as just walking around, especially in places where he actually stole from? What was that experience like for you? Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you asked me this question, Jen, because it's not really in the book since the book is in the third person. And as you mentioned, really short. Uh, I have three teenage children at home. And so I just don't have time in my life for 700 page books. (laughs) So it was probably 10,000 pages I could have written on this, but I just tried to give the readers the best 200 I could because we all have busy lives. Now, I think I think one of the things I love about journalism in general is that um, I usually I usually get something out of my projects and boy I will never walk through a museum or look at a piece of art the same way after spending time with Stefan Breitweiser and I'm hoping the readers sort of have the same sort of reaction that it sort of changes the way you see art now don't steal them you can think <laughs> about stealing them but um, walking through a museum with the world's greatest art thief just even that line itself is a is, that's a good that's a good barroom tale already yes it was incredible just very briefly i think we could talk about this all night so brightweiser is basically banned from most museums he put on a light disguise a fake pair of glasses and a baseball cap and we went to see one of the pieces that he had stolen it was back in the museum we won't say how it got back there but <laughs> um the way he walks through museums so so brightweiser when he's not in a museum is a little laconic he's just sort of like almost a little bit monotone and dullish he walks through the door museum and it is like he'd been he just swallowed like a triple espresso or something like that he comes to life his eyes are wide open now brightweiser like many art lovers does not believe that art is only experienced with the eyes mm. the most important sense even for a painting to him is touch the fingertips now i'm going to tell you what i did but please don't tell the authorities at the rubens house in <laughs> In Belgium, in Brussels, Belgium, but he, when no guard was looking, I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but it's true, like he was showing me this Rubens painting and he took my hand and very lightly brushed my fingertips over a corner of the painting and he said, you feel those ridges, do you feel the paint, a painting is three dimensional, a human put that on there, this is not something printed, you know, out of a, out of a FedEx office, this is a three dimensional, it almost has sculpture like things and when you feel those ridges there is like this crazy frisson, I pulled my hand away immediately because that is not something that's allowed in a museum, <laughs> right. but Reitweiser himself would rub his hands over sculptures and paintings and have this like I guess I could describe it as like an electric shock look that came over him. It was really, and when I did a lot of my research, uh, other art historians and researchers have, have mentioned that this tactile sense is essential for true esthetes, people that love works of art, which is one of the reasons why he liked to take them home. He wanted to sit in a couch 
in front of them. He wanted to be able to touch them. He wanted to be able to, frankly, make love to his girlfriend in front of them. These are things that are, are frowned upon in museums, I believe. <laughs> and, uh, um, I think I can go on for a long time, but uh, also when Breitweiser, who is a self like an autodidact. He read books after books after books. He didn't steal things without knowledge. He stole things with full knowledge. And he, the way, he, like the craziest art professor in the world, he would first talk about what was on the painting. Then he always liked to talk about the frame. And then we would move to the side of the painting and he would talk about how it was attached to the wall and how you might just detach it from the wall and where the alarms were and where the best door was and how, which, which part of your body you should put it on to walk out the front door. So the tour included the front, the back and the stealing of the painting and again, I will never walk through a museum quite the same way. I find myself subconsciously counting the video cameras in every gallery <laughs> I'm in and seeing the ridges of the paint and sort of, if, I, if I'm waxing a little poetic, again, I disapprove of Breitweiser's actions, but wow, did he sort of alter my vision of the beauty in the world. You know, something that I also found surprising, but I think is also a testament to your writing and your telling of the story, is that I'm with you entirely in that I do not approve of his actions. But I found myself as I was reading, especially towards the second half of the book, I found myself sympathizing with him. And so I'm holding these conflicting emotions in my mind of abhorring his behavior, but also feeling sorry for him or or understanding his point of view in some ways. Was that a challenge for you as a journalist? Or is that something that with your training you keep at bay? Or, or how did that affect you, if at all? I mean, everybody likes different sort of stories. And while I admire the obvious heroes, the Mother Teresas, the freedom fighters, the soldiers on the front lines, these are like heroic characters. The people that really attract my sort of, let's just call it my journalistic spidey senses, are the shades of gray, the ones that you're not sure whether you like or you don't like. And I don't know. I'm a longtime reader. And I I really respect, there's not, you know, many people, looking at my children, many people have sort of left books behind for TikTok. And so I'm hoping to talk to readers here. Yeah. And readers tend to be very opinionated, very intelligent. Like, I never want to talk down to a reader. My goal when I'm writing something, is to present a person warts and all. And when someone like you, Jen, says, you know, I'm not sure how I feel about them, you're actually, that's exactly what I'm hoping you would say, because I'm not sure how yeah. I feel about Bright Beezer. From time to time, I was admirable of him. Most times I was disgusted by him. I was entertained by him. I was repulsed by him. And I don't like books that tell you how to feel about someone. I like books that respect the readers enough to let him or her make their own decisions. And if you're thinking like a juror, like if your mind is flopping back and forth, I hope that I, I look for readers that find that to be a fun experience because a good book to me, and I'm not saying this is a good book, that's for you to decide. A good book to me is sort of like a little bit of a dance. It's not like a dance video. You're actually going back and forth with the, with the writer. And I think with the twists and turns in this book, it allows you to feel multiple like multiple varied opinions of the main character and his girlfriend and his mother uh, yes. as the book, short as it is, progresses through loops, loop-de-loops and uh, unexpected twists and turns. And I, I really like you, you saying that, Jen, that you weren't sure how to feel because to this day, 11 years of work, tons of thought later, I'm not sure how I feel like Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays and Tuesdays <laughs> and Saturdays. You have to ask me, you know, how I feel about Bright Visor on a particular day and it'll be a different answer. 
What are the impacts of these many, many thefts? I'm especially curious about the the fact that so many of the museums that he targeted were these smaller or regional museums that don't have these big budgets for massive security systems and tons of personnel. Do you see that there have been these tangible changes at these kind of museums and institutions based on Breitweiser's actions? So... I have been a museum goer and a museum lover for my entire life since I was a really young kid. And I think that of all there's, I think we could talk from now till next, you know, month about the problems of modern society. And let's just put that aside. But I think one of the amazing things of modern society and museums, this seems like a long time, but museums only 300 years old before 300 years ago, only rich people had uh, artwork locked up in their castles, but museums are one of the great things of public society. We get to see priceless works, Da Vinci's and Van Gogh's and Picasso's, things that are would we would never be able to afford, cost hundreds of millions of dollars right there on a wall, not locked in a cage, not in a bank vault, but right there in front of our face. And most museums believe that putting a piece of glass over a painting uh, takes away from the experience. So the yeah. goal of a museum is to allow you, allow visitors extraordinary access to priceless works and with that comes a social pact yes. and the social pact is like we're not putting like literally we could end all museum thefts tomorrow which is lock everything in a cage and put an armed guard but then there'd be no more museums there'd just be big banks um, <laughs> yeah. so the truth of the matter Jen and museum pro, uh, the museum um, curators don't like to discuss this is mm-hmm. that there is a great amount of trust that the public will respect these works. And yeah. someone like Breitweiser was a cancer on the public trust. This is where I totally come down uh, on his case because he he's ruining this great public good for everybody else by being so damn selfish. I understand that being shoulder to shoulder with a bunch of selfie stick carrying people, uh, you know, with an elbow in your sternum is not the ideal way to see the Mona Lisa. Right. <laughs> It's better than not seeing it at all. And you just, uh, you have to obviously put up with, you know, you just, we just can't act selfishly like that or else no one's going to be able to see it at all. Um, And again, these are, these are the things that I think working on this book sort of brought up, bubbled forth in me, like, you know, the selfishness of one's actions versus the uh, desire, the depths of one's aesthetics attractions. Well, I think it's a really incredible story. It's interesting. It's a fun read. It's a fast read. But again, these all these little questions and issues bubble up under the surface. So I think there's so much that readers will get to think about and uncover as they go through this book. So at just to finish off today, Michael Finkel, I want to thank you, first of all, for being on our show. And what is next for you? Where can people find you and where can they grab copies of The Art Thief, which comes out next week? I mean, thank you so much for having me uh, on this show. And yeah, so The Art Thief, you can go to my website, which is michaelfinkel.com. I think mikefinkel.com will take you there too. Please uh, buy it at an independent bookstore, Yay. buy it on Amazon. Uh, <laughs> if you're an audio, audio person, download it uh, audibly. Um, any way that you can absorb this. And uh, if you like it, I mean, the way, the way this book business works, if you if you don't like the book, maybe just between me and you, let's just be quiet about it. Yes. And if you do, I don't ask you, I'm not asking anyone to lie, but if you do like it, how about saying to a, a reader friend of yours, as we know, the, the community of readers is not the largest in the world. This is not, you know, we're not talking about Marvel movies here. We're talking about nonfiction books. If you do like it, I would love for you to mention it to your reading friends. And um, on my website is... Uh, 
a contact box as many of them have if you know you were talking so um i really loved your vivid uh depiction of uh all these things bubbling up i was actually having this image of the cover of the book sort of like uh with like a pepto-bismol tablet sort of like being opened by a foam of bubbles i don't know for some reason <laughs> your words like put that beautiful thing so if any any of these bubbles bubbling up in the book um get caught in your craw readers send me a note and i'll uh i'll tell you what i think but really i tried to lay down all the facts as smoothly and cleanly as possible and i'd like to hear what you think as well so if you write me a note let me know what you think about the main character on the scale of respect to disgust and i like to see where everyone lies i love that and i also just love the fact that you want to receive uh, and be in communication with folks because sometimes a lot of authors feel like they're at a distance so i appreciate your your openness as well Thank you so much for all of this. I personally love this book. I will share links on my website and on social media, but I hope nothing but great things come your way with the publication of this book next week. And thank you for sharing it with us today. That was so kind of you to say and and really wonderful to have me uh, on at such length and allowing me to uh, babble uh, babble on about uh, about Stefan Breitfieser. Thank oh, you. Thank you so much. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this bonus episode smack dab here in the middle of our season on Modern Love. I highly recommend that if you get the chance, find this book at your local library or order it online. I've made it easy for you by including a link to bookshop.org and to Amazon in today's show notes. So do try and check that out. We will be back to you shortly to continue this current season. And until next time, I hope you are doing well. Stay curious.